Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Many of my childhood years in this cinema. Um, and if any of the management at present, they need to close their ears now, because we used to let our mates in through that fire door down there <laughs> when, it's, when the lights went down. One thing that's been missing when I've come here on previous occasions, thank you, is we don't have the ladies who bring the ice creams down at the interval. So perhaps that's something to think about, <laughs> to serve the ice creams on trays. Okay, let's get right into the passage for tonight, which is 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 18. I've read this passage through a few times. And it's one of those passages, it's actually quite difficult to read. So I'm guessing it's kind of quite difficult to concentrate on as well. So really do your best to concentrate on the passage as we read it together. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. going to do the moonwalk. <laughs> Who recognises that? Okay, what was it? Michael Jackson. Okay, that song was released 20 years ago. 20 years ago. A lot's happened in 20 years, hasn't it, in our society, in our culture. We've seen the emergence of Facebook as a global phenomenon. We've had the Iraq war. We've had the death of Princess Diana. We've had the tsunami. So many things have happened in 20 years. Well, from Jerusalem, from Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and that explosion of, of the gospel message in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ, um, there was 20 years until this church was established in Corinth and Paul writes this letter to address some issues that were going, going on in the church. And a lot has happened in 20 years. In Acts 2 we see what many Christians would consider the model of a sort of a perfect local church. Uh, we see a Jewish-based environment where people would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, familiar with the sacrificial system and all that that meant in terms of approaching a holy God. They would have been familiar with the temple and its worship and so on. It was a united congregation. It seems they were very fluid as compared with many of our churches today. They'd be in and out of each other's homes and so on. 
But nevertheless, they were of one heart, they were of one mind. And that's one expression that's constantly used throughout the early chapters of Acts. You know, they were of one accord, they were one heart, they were of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Their unity was apparent. They were also extremely selfless. People who were wealthy sold lands and gave the money and laid it at the apostles' feet so it could be distributed to those who had less uh, financial resources. They shared their food together. They broke bread from house to house, it tells us. And these were no doubt really exciting times as the Christians, the early Christians, were empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the reality of Christ, who was somebody who was actually a real person to these early Christians, you know. It wasn't a theoretical idea of some sort of religious belief. This was actually a real person that they knew to be resurrected. And that was the real power of the message, that they actually were preaching a person, not a concept, not a religion, or some sort of, you know, get, you know, get your life on track kind of program. This was a person, a real, actual, living person you can have a relationship with. And so, not surprisingly, we see that that congregation was Christ-centered. Everything that they did, everything that they said, they continually, it says, in Acts, I think it's five, it says, from day to day in the temple and from house to house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ or Jesus as the Christ. So they were presenting a person. So through persecution and through Paul largely, the gospel explodes through Asia and into Europe and then we have this little gathering in, in Corinth and Paul is now addressing a church of a very different nature. Instead of being um, a, a united group of, of largely Jewish believers, they were a mixed company, some Jews, some Greeks, some Romans. They were following different leaders and forming factions in the church. There were divisions there. They were highly gifted church in terms of spiritual gifts, which were on display. All kinds of phenomena were taking place, and, and the services were no doubt really quite exciting times where all kinds of things were bubbling over, but there was a lack of control, and these things were being used in a showy way in order to draw attention to self rather than to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were also plagued by immorality, that there was sexual immorality within the congregation, which Paul had to address. There was greed, there were people abusing the Lord's Supper, getting drunk, not sharing food that was brought along, not waiting for people to turn up before they got into the, the meal and so on. But the issue I want to address tonight through this passage really is the insecurity that this congregation felt being in the cultural setting that they found themselves in. And this really is important to understand the Corinthian culture of the time because this gives us the backdrop to this passage which is really important. Corinthian culture was a culture characterised by great wealth. The city had been destroyed and then rebuilt by the Romans relatively recently, but it was a population of half a million. Now Homer, one of the early Greek authors in his, in his Iliad, the poem, spoke of wealthy Corinth, that this was a place of great abundance and there were many wealthy people in this, no doubt, in this congregation. It was a city that was dominated by sport, it was the site of the Isthmian Games, which was held a year before and a year after the Olympic Games. This was a, a, an event of great cultural and religious significance. And so sport was a really, really massive thing in Corinth. Also, um, sex and sexuality was a very important part of the culture because the temple of Aphrodite was dominated by something like, according to the writer Strabo, 1,000 prostitutes. Can you imagine, you know, that kind of atmosphere in that kind of a city? 
The only time I've ever experienced anything like that was going to, to Mumbai in India. And there are some streets in Mumbai. A friend of mine works with children from the red light district in Mumbai. And I've been to this place a couple of times, Kamathapura in, in, uh, in Mumbai. And it's like a sea of lust. There are tens of thousands of men wandering around at night. And there are booths at the side of the road with curtains on them. And women of all ages, from girls right up to old ladies, are standing on the side of the street. And there's this highly charged atmosphere that's kind of dangerous and intimidating and really frightening. And I can imagine that Corinth was something like that at night. It was, a, it was a place where this kind of activity was taking place. It was also a place that was dominated by celebrity. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Do you recognise these features? You know, this is a very similar culture to our own, isn't it? In fact, this is much more similar to the culture that we live in than the Jerusalem church's culture. Steeped in the Judaic, Judaic traditions and so on and so forth. Anybody recognise these faces and can tell me what they have in common? Thank you. Give this guy an extra bag of sweets, okay? <laughs> These people all featured in the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in 2012 in London. These people were selected specially for this event. Obviously, we've got Daniel Craig, Rowan Atkinson, Paul McCartney. His singing is absolutely terrible these days, isn't it? It's really bad. Um, got Dizzy, we've got David Beckham, we've got Tim Berners-Lee and Steve Redgrave. All of these people were specially selected to take part in the Olympic Games opening ceremony because they are deemed to be world-class, iconic individuals who are in some way expressive of British culture. Okay? They are specially selected, they are renowned throughout the world and yet quintessentially British, so to speak. We have an actor, we have a comedian, we have two musicians, we have two sportsmen and a computer scientist thrown into the mix. I want you to just imagine for a minute that if these, this group, of, the second group of celebrities was to be part of the Olympics opening ceremony. Now, it'd be quite difficult because some of these people are not alive today. <laughs> but just kind of let your imagination run wild on this one. We've got Watson and Crick, the DNA guys. We've got Phillips, uh, sorry, Frederick Sanger, who's the double award-winning, Nobel Award Prize-winning uh, biologist. We've got um, Stephen Hawking. We've got Bertrand Russell, the philosopher. We've got Alan Turing, the father of computer science, the Enigma code machine guy, etc. And our friend Richard Dawkins. These are probably the type of people that the Corinthians would have had opening the Isthmian Games. You know, these were the celebrities that they looked up to, not people like actors and, and, and comedians and people like that. These were their kind of celebs, you know, the real highbrow people. That's what they really looked up to. And so the source of the insecurity being experienced by the Corinthians was they fell under pressure in a society which perceived them perhaps as being somewhat lowbrow in a, in a culture that really elevated highbrow in a massive way and they kind of felt under pressure because the gospel just seems so simplistic and just so kind of weak in terms of being an argument or a philosophy in comparison with some of the things which were around them at the time and so Paul kind of addresses this issue by saying the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of God and then he quotes from the Old Testament so in intellectual insecurity. You know, 
we've already mentioned that we share some features in common with Corinthian culture, but we can experience some of this intellectual insecurity in the society we live in. We can feel that pressure because of the simplicity of the gospel, because Christianity is basically a faith-based system. We accept on trust things that seem utterly ridiculous to most people in society today. The virgin birth of Christ, ridiculous. The miracles of Christ, come on, you don't believe in that stuff, surely. Walking on water, water into wine, feeding 5,000 from five thousand. no, come on. You know, this is absolutely not on. What about the resurrection? The bodily resurrection of Christ. You know, we actually just take for granted almost, because we, we are people of faith, things that are ridiculous in the culture in which we find ourselves. And so there is a possibility that we could feel insecure in such an environment. Paul comes straight in here and he kind of just goes straight in like, straight for the jugular and in verse 17, which we didn't read, which was a, preceded the passage we read, he says, I did not come to Corinth to preach the gospel with wisdom and eloquence. But if I did, in other words, if I were to do that, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. Christ did not send him to Corinth to preach the gospel with wisdom and eloquence. In other words, to present it as a philosophical system or as a thesis to be argued for and against. He addresses these insecurities by focusing on the central message of the Christian faith, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Forget all the arguments about the existence of God, about how creation came into being, about things that we perhaps find difficult to understand, and let's talk about the heart of the matter. Because the cross of Christ reveals more than any other event in history the potential for evil that is in the heart of man. That mankind could torture and put to death a man who had not only done nothing wrong, but had gone about doing good. A good man. A great man, a wonderful man, could be taken and treated in that manner. Now we can look back over 2,000 years and say, well, I weren't involved in that. That wasn't my deal. That was the, wasn't that the Romans and the Jews. The Jews said, his blood be upon us and our children. He said, we have no king but Caesar, they said to Pilate. Then the Romans took him and they nailed him to the cross and put him on public display. But you know... The reason that that all happened was not because of men and men, what men did to him. It's because he went there voluntarily to perform an action towards God that was intercessory on our behalf. He went there, in fact, because of what I am. That's what I've come to discover. So the cross teaches me what is actually in my heart, the potential for evil that is there. The sin that needs to be paid for before a holy God who demands, who demands that a price is paid for that sin that has taken place. It teaches us about the heinousness of sin in the sight of God. When we recognise the fact that Jesus Christ had to quote those words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Left alone on the cross when he had endured in eternity a perfect relationship with God, 
uninterrupted, he comes down to earth and has to make that terrible statement, that terrible cry of anguish. Because he had in fact been separated from God because he was at that point bearing our sin in his body upon the tree. And so the cross teaches me about the heart of man, but it teaches me about the nature of sin and how God views that. God was prepared to allow his son to go through that torment and agony, and I'm not even thinking about the physical sufferings of the cross. We're talking here about the spiritual sufferings of a perfect man who was in fact the son of God, who was separated from his God and Father for the first time in eternity. This was a monumental event. It also teaches us surely more than anything else about the character of God. His refusal to compromise and to set the agenda for salvation. We do not set the agenda. We do not come to God on our own basis or in the way that's most comfortable or palatable to us. God is saying, this is the way. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a pretty exclusive statement, isn't it? Okay, so the, the character of God is revealed, but also the glory of Christ. What event more than the cross can reveal the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ than the fact that he was prepared to go through that for you and for you personally? And for me, he was prepared to go through that, that he contemplated in the Garden of the Gethsemane. He said, please, Father, let this cup pass from me. He was in agony, contemplating being separated from God and being made sin for us. He was prepared to do it for you. He was prepared to do it for me. You know, the cross, it just cuts right through all this stuff, doesn't it? You know, all these arguments and philosophies and religious theories. It just gets to the heart of the matter. Cuts right through it all. And it teaches us about the plan of salvation. That God, in his wisdom, has used something foolish and shameful. Something that can be scoffed at. And a person that seems at his weakest and most abject. He uses that to save mankind. And that's God's wisdom for us. And that's what Paul is talking about. The wisdom of God is it's just... Something that is far beyond anything that man could ever come up with. You know, we would never imagine such a scenario. You know, I don't know whether you're a sporty person or not, but you know, we've all been in the school playground, haven't we? When kids pick teams. And we've all seen the kids, haven't we, who get left till last. You know, they never get picked, do they? Oh, you have him. We don't want him. You know, you have him. Well, those are the ones God picks, aren't they? That's the means by which some, you know, God sometimes picks those that nobody else wants. You know, this is the wisdom of God. He chooses the, the weak things of this world and the things that are abject. And that is the whole wonderful thing about the cross. So Paul says, you know, he says, you don't need to know all the answers, Corinthians. You don't need to come back with all the, the fancy arguments in these philosophical debates. You don't need to have every counter-argument to every objection. You just need to know about the transforming power of the cross in your life. A bit like the blind man in John's Gospel. He was bombarded with questions after he'd had his sight restored. You know, people were at him just asking him, what happened, who was it, what did he do? He said, look, I, I don't know all the answers. He said, one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. 
You know, you only have to tell what you know, don't you? You don't have to tell what you don't know. If you're a new Christian and you've not been a believer very long, you don't know much about the Bible, no one's going no to ask you to give a massive exposition of the book of Exodus or something. You know, you just need to tell them how you got saved, how you became a Christian, what it means to you, what the cross means to you, how you discover that you're a sinner in need of a, a holy God to save you, and so on. Just tell what you know. It's very simple. And so, in the light of the cross, God, Paul kind of challenges the Corinthians and he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You see, one of the things that Paul is saying, well, one of the things that Paul is not saying, he's not saying that Christianity is anti-intellectual or anti-education or opposed to, you know, man's God-given intellect and the, the right use of it. But what he says in this passage is that actually, in terms of getting to God, these things have just led men up blind alleys, you know, and, and they've ended up with, that they're not any closer to God. These things are not a means of reaching God. It's great that people are gifted with amazing intellects and can make fantastic discoveries and write wonderful books and poems and songs and so on. It's brilliant. But... Philosophical speculation is not a means of getting to God. The gospel and the cross are the only means of salvation. And that's what Paul is talking about, that God in his wisdom has deliberately used a simple message that any child can understand. You know, that's the beauty of it. The simplest child can understand the basic message of the gospel and of the cross. But Paul anticipates some objections and he realised that Jews and Greeks have particular prerequisites in order to be persuaded of something. He says the Jews require a sign and the Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. <coughs> Paul says that for the Jews, some kind of sign was a prerequisite for belief. Now, what he's effectively saying is this. I will worship you, God, if you give me a sign. In other words, I will worship you if you do something about my issues. Heal me of my disease. Take away my addiction. Or show me some kind of tangible sign Effectively, it's kind of saying, prove your existence to me and then I'll believe. But actually, God kind of puts it the other way around. He, said, he says, rather, believe and then I'll prove myself to you in thousands and thousands and thousands of ways, in countless situations. God is actually demanding from us that we actually have faith and trust in him first. And then the proof comes... Afterwards, any, speak to anybody who's been a Christian for some time. They could have had good times, bad times, happy times, hard times in life. But most times they will tell you that God has proved himself to be faithful in their lives. So the Jews required a sign. But the, the Greeks seeked, sought after wisdom. Both of these effectively are kind of form of arrogance in a sense. Because they're, they're asking God to to demonstrate himself to us on our terms. And so 
with the Greeks, they're kind of saying, I will worship you when? When I am satisfied intellectually that you have solved all my, you know, answers to all my questions. When, you know, you've exactly kind of proved yourself in terms of a philosophical treatise. But, you know, who are we to demand that the God who just flung the stars into space, you know, proves himself to us? And so again, Paul just cuts right across these things for the second time and comes straight in with the central message, we preach Christ crucified. Saying the only legitimate starting point in acquiring a knowledge of God is not signs and wonders, it's not philosophical speculation, but the cross of Christ. However, we have to concede that the belief that a Jewish rabbi with a following of 11 from a nothing village in a country the size of Wales 2,000 years ago who was tortured and died a criminal's death and then rose again is from a human perspective, a non-believer's perspective, if you like, quite odd. And that's why I guess this course is called Crazy Christianity because we can't get away from it. In, in those terms, it does seem rather crazy. And the Corinthians are continuing to struggle with this. They're not comfortable with how they might be perceived in their culture. And so Paul reminds them that not many of them were wise by human standards when they were called. Not many were, you know, notable. Not many were of noble birth. Not many were influential and so on. Because he's kind of emphasising the fact that God has chosen a message that is very simple and, you know, is not a philosophical system with all the answers. But he also chooses people that are pretty simple and pretty basic ordinary people for the most part. Not many. It doesn't say not any, does it? It says not many. Not many are wise by human standards. Not many are influential. Not many are noble-born. You know, it's still true today, actually, isn't it? If you're a Christian here today, you'd have to admit that we kind of like it when we can think of somebody who's pretty cool out there in the world is a Christian. You know, I was talking to my wife this morning in bed, and she stayed up and watched a TV programme last night about a boxer called Nigel Benn. Now, Nigel Benn, when I was growing up, was the most aggressive, most destructive boxer on the British boxing scene. He was an absolute animal. But this guy has apparently become a born-again Christian, and he's like preaching God's word and all of this stuff. And the programme was about somebody who, who was brain damaged for life in one of his fights, and he went to find him in America and ask his forgiveness and so on. I remember discovering that Jason Robinson, who was one of my all-time favourite rugby players, a rugby league and rugby union superstar, was a Christian. I thought, whoa, that is great. Jason's one of us. You know, he's a, he's a believer. Fantastic. And we do, we love it, don't we, as Christians? When, But there aren't many, actually. You know, when you think about it, in the grand scheme of things, there aren't that many. I'm kind of thinking, how many wise people, according to worldly standards, are Christians? Well, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, wasn't he? You know, a lot of people read his books and think he's really deep. Influential. I'm struggling there. How many Christians are influential? Well, Will, William Wilberforce was influential, but, you know, that was in Victorian times. That was a long time ago. Noble. Noble-born. I'm trying to think of a noble-born Christian now. 
help me out. You know, the Queen, I don't know, is the Queen a Christian? Maybe. Certainly George VI seemed to be, didn't he? He led the, the country in prayer during the war and so on. But, you know, it's not that easy, is it? And it's true, you know, that most Christians are actually quite ordinary, unremarkable people. And God does have this way of kind of choosing those who, you know, are not really fancied that much by the world in their standards. Going back to the teams in the playground again. God is able to work with substandard materials to produce something that is great, amazing, beautiful, influential, wise, wonderful. But that is actually really nothing to do with the person that he chooses. It's actually to do with God. And that's why Paul says, you know, that we don't have any boasting in ourselves. We boast in the Lord. There's nothing for me to glory in. All that I am and all that I have is of God. It is because of him that I am in Christ. I have no need to feel insecure. I don't have to win all the arguments. I understand the power of the cross in my life and what it means. I have security. I have affirmation in him because he has chosen me despite what I am. Despite my sin, despite my failure, despite my weakness. He has chosen me. I am in him. He loves me despite my deficiencies. And I can say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God that brings salvation. I'm going to let us just allow that all to settle. You know, I know we live in a culture in many ways that shares features with the Corinthian culture. Many of the dominant features are there in our society. It's possible that we could feel under pressure, that we don't kind of feel in sync with the society that we're in. But, you know, let's just take a moment to think about the cross and what that actually means for us personally. Whether you're actually a Christian here tonight or whether you're not a Christian, it's always a good thing to think about the cross. Why did that have to happen? Why was that so significant? What does it mean for me personally? Am I, am I in the picture at all? There's, there's a hymn, isn't there, one of the, um, one of the hymns that says, you know... Um, Ashamed I hear my angry voice call out amongst the scoffers. Like the, the, the person who wrote that song, it's about the cross, he's, he's actually putting himself there. Ashamed I hear my angry voice calling out among the scoffers, hurling insults at the man on the cross. It was my sin that put him there. You know, there's that recognition. So, you know, let's just take a few moments of quiet and then I'm going to ask Matt to come up and... Just invite us to a response to what we've heard tonight. Mm -hmm.